This is episode 35 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, 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 how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And uh, today, we've got a real fun one for you, because we're going to be talking about currencies and the uh, book called Currency Wars by Jim Rickards. And uh, before we get to that, I just want to talk about some current events that happened this past week. And just so everyone knows, we're at the first week of May uh, as we're recording this. And uh, as everyone knows, uh, that's whenever Berkshire Hathaway has its shareholders meeting is at the beginning of May. And so there are some interesting exchanges that uh, came out in the news in this past week with Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Charlie Munger, um, even the the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, was saying some interesting things. And that's what we're going to discuss here at the start of the show. So the interview that I'm referencing is one that took place on CNBC, where uh, Bill Gates, Charlie Munger and uh, Warren Buffett were all sitting together so uh, the interviewer asked them about what their opinions were on interest rates and how they're basically affecting the economy. And so Bill Gates kind of kicked off the conversation and he started off by saying how he was concerned with low interest rates persisting not only in the United States, but around the world and what that impact might have. And so his exact quote, he said, the environment with low interest rates it's globally so unusual. It really shouldn't persist, he said. It creates problems in terms of leverage and bubbles, but how we get out of it is really the major economic setback and concern. It would be very difficult. And that was pr pretty much the end of his quote. So uh, then the interviewer asked uh, Warren Buffett what he thinks about it. And Buffett has the opinion that low interest rates are affecting the real estate market uh, in a big way. And that was ironically, that was something that we were talking about in our previous episode uh, with Josh Dorkin. He shared the same concern um, and also felt that these low interest rates are creating a major bubble uh, in the real estate market. And so the main uh, takeaway that Buffett had, and this was his exact quote, he says, interest rates change the value of real estate dramatically, especially as they persist in this country. And it's probably changed the value of stocks pretty dramatically. And then Charlie Munger, his vice chairman, said, I'm deeply suspicious about printing money and throwing it around instead of printing money and building infrastructure and so on. Uh, and then Buffett said, if interest rates normalize, we'll look back and say stocks weren't so cheap after all. So that's a really, for me, that's an extremely interesting conversation because they're really talking about the same similar stuff that we've been saying and just our concern about interest rates persisting and being low and how that's really kind of making things seem like they're a good deal, even though they might not be as, as soon as the Fed brings up rates. So now this is where it got really interesting is Buffett continued this conversation and he, he made the comment that he didn't feel interest rates were going to go much higher whenever the Fed starts bringing them in, or at least they won't be happening at a fast pace. Um, he definitely thinks that interest rates are going to go up, but he doesn't think that it's going to happen at a level of 4%. And that's the exact number that he actually quoted. 
And the main reason that Buffett said that he doesn't think that they're going to go that high is because he's, he basically said Janet Yellen's hands are tied. The Fed chairman's hands are tied and that she can't raise rates much higher simply because of the situation that's happening in other markets and in other currencies. So when you look over at Europe, they've got negative interest rates in some locations. That's why he doesn't think that interest rates are going to go much higher than where they're at right now, or at least quickly. Um, he thinks that it's going to be a slow and gradual process. And, you know, Stig and I obviously agree with, with what Mr. Buffett is saying. We're definitely not going to be arguing that point. There wasn't anything that they recommended or the path forward. They're just basically expressing their concern. And this is where it got for me by the middle of the week. So that conversation really took place on like a Monday of this past week. And then by Wednesday, you had Janet Yellen come out. She made the claim that she didn't think that financial stability was necessarily too much of a concern, which is arguable. (laughs) But she did say this, which was really interesting. She said stock prices are still quite high right now. And I think for any Fed chairman to say something like that is pretty extreme um, because they they live in the in the world of moderation and and really not saying anything. In fact, there's a Alan Greenspan uh, quote where he's (laughs) I'm going to mess up the quote, but the quote went something like, if you are reading in and you think that I'm telling you something, you completely missed what I was trying to tell you, because my job as the Fed chairman was to be as ambiguous as possible. Um, which I thought was a very funny quote. But uh, so you have Janet Yellen coming out and saying that she thinks that stock values are high. Um, you have two of the wealthiest people in the world, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, both saying that they think that equities are high. Um, and if interest rates would change even the least little bit, that it's going to cause stocks look like they are um, not such a good deal after all. So just wanted to start off with that. And I want to kick it over to Stig because I'm sure he has some comments. Yeah, I'm, I was really uh, curious when uh, Preston sent this to me. I know from, you know, I've been following uh, Warren Buffett for years, and he very rarely talks about the uh, the current stock price level. And I think that's, that's probably a wise thing, because if he did have a comment about uh, the current uh, price level of the stock market, you know, he won't be talking about anything else. But he's been known for talking about the, uh, the, the stock market, you know, when it's really extremely low. So for, he's, he's quoted for saying something in 2009, and I'm probably completely going to miss up the quote again, but he was saying that you should probably start buying equities. I mean, that was not what he said, but basically that is what, it, what he meant. And then, for instance, he was also famous for uh, the speech he held in uh, 1999 when he said that this is just going to explode. Again, that was not his exact quote, but that's what he meant, and he was completely right about both things, by the way. So, I mean, I think that was really what I took away from from this article and this interview that Warren Buffett rarely speaks about the uh, the current level and it's completely true the the chairman of the Fed doesn't speak about it but they do now and that's just just quite interesting I, I'd say yeah yeah I totally agree I was talking with Colin Yablonski our friend from uh, our mastermind group on uh, Wednesday after the Janet Yellen comments and I said you know Colin I'm not saying that this is a market top by no means, but I said it is very uh, rare that you see a Fed chairman come out and say that they think that the market is overvalued. I just found that to be quite unprecedented. Um, what, What she was trying to do with that comment, what she was trying to generate, I have no idea, but I just found it extremely rare. And so I said... I don't short sell, so uh, or at least I I never have short uh, sold anything. And I told Colin, I said, but this is very tempting whenever you have people like this saying those kind of things. 
I did not go out and place a short sell on anything. And I find it hilarious that the next day and Friday in the market, it was up tremendously from these comments. So that just shows you how euphoric things can be. And I I just found it really funny after our conversation where I was just a total bear after hearing this kind of news and the market just went wild on the on the two following days. So for people that are listening to this in the future, you can just hear how uh, we're having this discussion where we think that it's bearish conditions, but yet the market is continuing to go higher. It's not even paying attention to these kinds of things. It's it's looking at other factors. So. Uh, it's just fun to be able to document these conversations and to uh, as we're going through this, you can hear our thoughts and, and the things that we're thinking about. But uh, OK, that's enough about the current events. We're going to go ahead and uh, start talking about the book that Stig and I read. And for anybody that uh, wants to get our Cliff Notes version or our executive summary of the book, um, you can sign up on our website. Just, you know, we send two emails a month. I swear by that. I refuse to send any more than two emails a month. And in those emails, we always attach our book summaries. There's always something in it for you to to gain from the emails that we send. So if you want to sign up on that list, go to our website, theinvestorspodcast.com, and you can sign up on any of the pages there. So in general, I think that this book was... Um, it was really good with respect to the information that it was sharing. It, it taught me a lot about currencies. But in general, there's a lot of things that I disagreed with in this book. I guess my biggest uh, complaint or concern with the book is that after I was done reading it, you, you pretty much feel like the world's going to have a total meltdown, which I don't necessarily feel that I have that opinion. So that's kind of where I had a little uh, different perspective on this. But I did think that the book was good. So uh, we'll just go ahead and start off by talking really kind of through the the order that the book was presented. Uh, the book starts off with a discussion um, about what Mr. Rickards had a personal experience where he was working at a location called the APL, which is the Applied Physics Laboratory here in the United States. And uh, Mr. Rickards talks about how they went through basically a war game uh, but it was based on currencies and it was a financial uh, war game that the government had um, done. And so Mr. Rickards was part of this and he wrote about it in the book. And um, he talks about how they had put different ideas forth. He and another gentleman were trying to um, really induce the idea of gold and how gold would play into currencies and currency wars amongst other countries and at the end of this uh, war game that he was involved in, um, he really kind of his takeaway was that most of the people that were um, involved didn't really fully understand um, currencies or equities or how markets interact and that they were more like military people and people that really didn't have that level of expertise that he and somebody else had. So from a style standpoint of writing, he was definitely boasting about his his knowledge of uh, markets and things like that. I found the introduction of the book to be a little awkward. That was my personal opinion. I'm really curious to hear what Stig thought of the intro of this book. Yeah, I I was um, <laughs> I I don't know what to really to say about this because I think it was it went on for like a chapter or two, and I was like, are we going to so the reason I'm saying this is that he was talking about the different rounds, like for instance round. I don't know, two, it was something about North Korea. It might also be round three. So we were going through these rounds and discussing, you know, what, what would be appropriate in these different scenarios. And I was like, I know that the title is Currency Wars. Like, I listened to the book, so I didn't have the uh, the table of content. And I was like, 
am I going to listen to 50 rounds of <laughs> different <laughs> scenarios about currency wars? <laughs> I, I had read a review on the book before I started reading it. And one of the reviews was the first chapter was horrible, but the rest of the book was good. And so whenever I was listening to it, I was like, okay, yeah, I agree with that person's review. I don't really particularly like this first chapter, but it did. The book definitely got better after the first chapter, I, will, I have to say. Yeah, so I uh, actually just want to throw in that I got an email like a few months ago from one of our, from one of your audience called uh, Mark Littlejohn. So he was actually the one who was uh, suggesting that we would, well, actually take uh, James Ricards, which is the author of the book, on the show, and then also uh, Recurrency Wars. So, um, no, I just want to add one thing before I move on. He's actually saying this email because I just pulled it off. You and Preston almost makes Bel Air sound like an exciting place. <laughs> <laughs> and it is not. <laughs> it, it is not. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's hilarious. That was hilarious. Yeah. I just pulled it off now. Yeah. So, uh, Mark, first of all, uh, we've definitely sent you a signed copy of our, our most popular book, the Warren Buffett accounting book for suggesting this. Um, so I, I was just thrilled, you know, I love getting uh, book suggestions from your audience. So, you know, when I hear something called currency wars, I'm like, yes, that is definitely <laughs> what you do. Uh, not because of the Bel Air comment, which was also hilarious, but also because the other thing, uh, but also because uh, right now, or actually it started a few, a uh, few months ago, President and I had really started to look into, into currencies. So I guess you can also say there was really... I wouldn't say a lucky punch, but you know, the timing was really good because early on we really looked at you know the microeconomics of the of the company, and now we also look at the macroeconomics uh, about investing. All right, so let's keep moving on. Uh, thanks, Mark, for the uh, suggestion to read this book. Uh, we were real happy, like Stig said, to dig into currencies and talk about that a little bit more. So uh, we'll keep uh, moving here on the book. And so for anyone in the audience, if you have a book suggestion, go ahead and send it our way. Particularly, we want to read books that billionaires have recommended. We've kind of got off that beaten path with a couple of the recent episodes, but we want to get back on it. And I think you'll notice that on our future books that we're reading. Uh, but anyway, uh, after the first chapter, after the first two chapters where he talks about this experience of working at the Applied Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins uh, University, he then goes and talks about uh, these reflections back on um, basically like the history of the gold uh, standard and how gold interacted with currencies. And he goes back to um, reflect on different currency wars. So Rickards describes the benefits of the classical gold standard that was placed um, in the United States back from 1870 to 1914. And he refers to this time as the best era in the history of gold with uh, several countries like Japan, Germany, uh, Austria, Spain, uh, just to name a few. And they were put into what was called the gold club. Uh, and the U.S. was the last one to join this club uh, during that period. And he says that during this time period, there was little to no inflation that occurred uh, during that period. So he has a discussion about that in the book. Uh, after that, he goes into another section where he talks about the very first currency war, which uh, he put dates on, which he said was from 1921 to 1936. And so anyone that knows their history knows that that coincides with the Great Depression and the uh, Roaring Twenties. What he really focuses on during this time period is the German currency, the mark. If for anyone that looks back at their history books, and they remember the, the picture of the gentleman with the wheelbarrow and it, the whole wheelbarrow is just full of money. That was in 1922 time frame uh, in Germany where they were trying to pay back their, their war debts from the First World War. 
And in order to do that, they went through this massive currency inflation where they were just printing money like wild in Germany in order to try to devalue their currency and pay back their debts. So in order to talk about uh, Germany's currency and how they had to pay back this World War One debt, uh, Stig's going to go ahead and uh, discuss that. Yeah, so you know, I I found this really interesting because I uh, I think I knew from probably back in my school days that there was a lot of inflation, but I just looked it up how much inflation there were, and it was uh, for one U.S. dollars that was equivalent to three trillion mark. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a lot of inflation. And before that, um, I, I think it was something like one to five or one to six or something like that. So I mean, it was a massive inflation. Um, and the reason for this was the uh, was the war damages that Preston was talking about before, after uh, the First World War. And there was actually a lot of discussion going on about how much that they should pay. And you have like really clever economists like Keynes saying that you should probably not, you know, be too cruel to Germany, even though after this uh, horrible war, because if they can't pay this back, a lot of bad things will just happen. And so they actually decided on a really large uh, amount of, of uh, war reparations. And I can't remember the exact amount, but it has to be paid back in hard currencies. So what the German did, uh, because they couldn't pay it back in, in mark, was actually to print a lot of mark and then convert it to, for instance, U.S. dollars. So that was why you see, would see this gradual rapid inflation and then pay the money back. And, you know... The history, the rest is history, as as we say, because what happened was that you saw a massive instability, and you know, basically as a result of this, but not only as a result of this, but also a major result of this, you also saw the Second World War, because it was just messing up the whole, uh, whole industries, and 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 everything in the country didn't work after the the inflation. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So we came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. 
That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Well, you get into what's called what people commonly refer to as a power vacuum. And you had this instability. And it's funny, I didn't know that about Keynes' uh, warning about that. And what do you have? You have Hitler comes in and very interesting discussion. And uh, so he, he talks about this. And this was the very first currency war that he attributes to, which was, like I said, 1921 to 1936. So then he talks about the uh, he goes into another chapter where he talks about the second currency war. And that was uh, from 1967 to 1987. Uh, and so what he really talks about as being one of the key drivers in this uh, time frame was in 1971, Nixon announced his new economic policy that consisted of price controls and immediate wages where the gold window would be closed and a hefty 10 percent would be applied on imports. So this had a uh, a large global, I think for the first time, you're really seeing the global piece really significantly play out. Um, where um, as soon as the the U.S. came off this gold standard, nothing was pegged anymore. So you didn't have the U.S. dollar pegged to anything. And and at the time, the U.S. dollar was really the thing that was driving the world economy. The U.S. was the was definitely the leader in economic growth during that period. And so whenever they came off the the gold standard, um, you had a floating currency. And as you study currencies and you learn about currencies, they're all relative. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway. That anyone could take away. So when we say that a currency is relative, what we're saying is that uh, the dollar is always uh, compared to some other currency or it's compared to gold or it's compared to silver. The value has to be compared to something else. So if the U.S. government decides that they're going to print a whole bunch of U.S. dollars uh, and add that to the monetary baseline, that's going to have an impact as to the the value of one dollar in that overall system compared to some other country's currency or material or uh, it always has to be compared to something else. Uh, So I think when you look at it through that lens, you're going to have a much easier time understanding how currencies work. Uh, when you're constantly uh, comparing it back to something else. So when you had Trace Knippa on the show, uh, you know, last episode, he was talking about how the Japanese currency, how he'd rather compare the Japanese uh, currency to gold than the U.S. dollar to gold because he felt that the Japanese were going to have to print a lot more of their currency in order to offset the conditions that they had with all the amount of debt that they have. So that's why he has that opinion is because he's relatively comparing it to gold, which in his opinion isn't changing and that it's the, the supply isn't getting bigger. So he he liked to use gold as that standard to peg it to. And you know what? So does everybody else, because um, Ray Dalio has a, a very good piece on this discussion where he talks about how currencies work. And he used an example in one of his writings, and I actually posted this on our Warren Buffett forum for, for some people to read. But um he compares it to loaves of bread. And I think that this is a great example. Uh, just so everyone knows, Ray Dalio, billionaire, hedge, largest hedge fund in the world. Um, and so he wrote this piece about how currencies work. So he said, if I could uh, peg, I can peg anything to a nut, to something else that's relative. So if I'm pegging it to a loaf of bread, if I can go out and I can produce more loaves of bread, It's harder for somebody to compare their, let's call it the dollar to a loaf of bread. It's harder for you to compare those two in relative terms because I can produce a lot more loaves of bread on a whim. But if I'm comparing the value of the dollar to something that I can't produce more of and that's relatively fixed, 
that's a great measure for me to be able to um, look at the relative value as it progresses over time. So I found the, the read to be extremely uh, valuable and interesting. We can provide a link to that discussion in the show notes to the forum where I, where I point that out, where Ray gives a, a thousand times better than the way I just described that in his writing, because he's a very good writer. And I highly recommend that people go in and read that discussion so you can understand currencies a little bit better. So got a little bit off track there, um, but really the main point where we were discussing the second currency war was that the, the U.S. came off the gold standard. Uh, Jim Rickards talks about this discussion in the book. It's a very good discussion. And the impact that that had globally, where you had nothing but floating currencies around the world and how it really kind of was a, a destabilizing event because everyone's currencies were floating. When that happens, they have this incentive to print more money so they can devalue their currency and get investors from outside the country to invest inside their country, which helps their GDP growth, which sounds really counterintuitive, I think, to a lot of people that devaluing your currency will spark growth. But um, that's what happens. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, and it leads into the the third currency wars, which he's dating from 2010 to the present and ongoing. So as we talk about this idea of countries devaluing their currency to spark and create GDP growth, um, you have a very interesting scenario, because from the individual standpoint... Uh, meaning the let's just say I'm Germany, okay? And if I devalue my currency, it's it's conducive for me to spark investment inside of my country. That's good for Germany, but that's bad for every other currency in every other country around the world. So what you have is you have an event that's that's great for your own self interest, meaning the country that does it, but bad for the for the global economy because what you have is you have a competition. Um, you have the euro competing with the dollar. You have China competing with the dollar. And you have this race of who can devalue their currency faster so that they can spark their GDP growth. And so the collective impact of that is bad for the world because you're having these countries that are continuing to devalue their currency, which I I personally think, and I don't think Jim says this in the book, but what I think is creating a major gap between your lower class and your upper class and the middle class is basically falling apart because of this. That's my personal opinion. I see Stig has a point that he wants to add. Yeah, I, I think one thing that we should always remember when we're talking about currencies is that it is really extremely important for the financial stability. And that, you know, we just discussed what happened in, in Germany in the 20s and, and the 30s. And, you know, Again, the main reason for that was the instability. And if you don't know what you can buy for a dollar, if you don't know what you can buy for a euro, if you think that your own central bank will start to print a lot of money, or if you think that your largest trading partner will start you know, slamming down the prices of the goods, then it creates a lot of uncertainty. And even though there's always a lot of uncertainty in the financial world, if you push financial instability enough, basically you have a system that is, that is falling down. And it you know it has many forms and shapes. Currency that's that's one of them. But what you saw also about the uh, uh, in the in the last financial crisis, you know, that was financial instability too. It was in a different form. It was not in so much in currencies. But that is the end result that you see if you have a currency war. That is basically chaos. And uh, and I just thought that was, that was something that we should always be thinking about. So uh, financial stability. One thing I want to talk about, because because you know it was really interesting when he starts, uh, James starts to to go into the uh, to the current currency war. I mean, one thing is to look back, 
at the the two previous currency wars, but also when he's talking about what is happening right now. And the thing I found especially interesting was that he said that if you look at the U.S., China, and Euro, a uh, eurozone, so that would be sixty percent of the GDP. You see, like a major currency wars between these three regions, especially between the uh, the U.S. dollars and the uh, Chinese yuan. And um, I actually found that as to be one of the most uh, most insightful things. And the way that this currency wars uh, works is that the the Chinese has uh, picked their currencies uh, to the U.S. dollar. So basically, what that means is that uh, the the Chinese central bank they're determining uh, the exchange rate between um, the U.S. dollars and one. Let me just give you an example of how this works in practice. Say that you are a Chinese company and you want to sell goods uh, in America and you would receive like a million dollars. Then you don't receive a million dollars. It's the central bank that are actually converting that and then you'll get a corresponding uh, amount in yuan, which is determined by the central bank. So uh, this is a major problem because as Preston was saying before, when you have a currency that is worth less, you have a big competitive advantage. Because the U.S., they're not just competing with other U.S. companies; they're always also competing with the with the Chinese companies, uh, and that was something I thought found was really uh, really interesting in the book. I don't know what you took away from from the Chinese American relationship, Preston. What I found interesting is how there's no relative change between the two of them. Now you're not seeing that with anyone else in the world. Um, you're you're seeing really more of a competition, but. Uh, that's the thing that I found really interesting. The other thing that I think is good um, to talk about is the idea that we had Larry Summers. We Remember when we played Larry Summers' uh, comments at Davos? This was probably maybe five episodes ago or something like that. Um, and he made the comment about everybody standing up in the auditorium. And so his comment said, uh, everyone right now is sitting down watching us. He said, but if one person stands up, that person's going to be able to see better. But what the problem is, is when that one person stands up, the people behind them can't can't see anymore. Their their vision is, is worse. So they entail they have to stand up. Next thing you know, everybody in the auditorium is standing up. Nobody's seeing any better than they were whenever they were sitting down. But now all their legs are hurting. And so that example that he gave and people might not have realized it at the time, but the example that he was providing is directly related to what we're discussing here. And what he means is if one person stands up, meaning if one country is devaluing their currency, they're actually making other countries want want to stand up too, which would be devalue their currency as well. Next thing you know, you have everybody devaluing their currency. That's what he was referring to in that comment. And I don't know if everybody really caught that uh, during that conversation, but that's what he was referring to. And that's what Jim Rickards is talking about in this particular point in the book. Oh, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, and you know, if if you if you look at the American and Chinese relationship, I think what is what's really important to understand is that the war is fought on many fronts. It's not just the Chinese who decided to pick this. Uh, the Americans actually uh, made a, just to use the terminology, a counterattack a few years ago. So back then, I think it was back in 2010, you actually heard uh, Obama saying that the U.S. Uh, should. Um, free myself from this crisis, and they should do that by doubling the export. So this was an example that was really good in the book. And what's really important to understand here is that the American economy, that's driven mainly by consumption. It's, it's, it's one of the economies in the world that's driven most by consumption. 70% is, of GDP is by consumption. Whereas the Chinese economy is not uh, driven by consumption, but more with, uh, with investments. And 
So why is this important? Well, this is actually very important because what happened uh, in 2010, 2011, you, well, you saw these different rounds. I think I actually saw this before with the QE. So what, what the US was actually doing was to basically print a lot of money. And this, no, the, the implication of this is really interesting because by doing this, they were actually you know, giving China two very, very hard choices. So the first one, is that uh, China uh, could not revaluate if they choose not to revaluate, which would be you know one thing to do. Then they have a lot of inflation because they need to print more money to keep up with this. And if they have more inflation, it's a big problem for China. So at this point of time, uh, you know in America you have uh, very low growth and you have very low inflation, whereas in China you have very high growth and very high inflation. So you are basically exporting the inflation problem to China. So that was the first uh, choice. Uh, the other choice that they could take was that if they did revaluate, which they actually did, I don't know how many people are following those exchange rates, but you can actually see that the Chinese, after the QE, decided to revaluate. Re the result of this is that the American companies are now more competitive than the Chinese companies in comparison to what they were before. So the currency wars that is actually talked about in this book, I mean, that is what you see right now. If you open up a newspaper, you are seeing a currency war right now. So I just wanted to, to throw in an example of, of what is actually happening. So what's really interesting, okay, is what's the end state? Okay, where has this all taken us? And I think that that's the, the really fun discussion to be had is if everyone's got an incentive to devalue their currency at a modest rate uh, so that they continue to spark some some form of GDP for their country. Where does this end as everybody continues to do this? Every country continues to do this. And you find yourself, and I think that's why Jim Rickards has such a negative uh, stance on where this is all going, is he sees it all ending very badly. I don't, I guess I just don't have such a pessimistic view on things. I think that... Um, I think that there is a way out of this, but you have to have global currencies starting to get pegged to something that is very standardized. And so some people might highly criticize this comment, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think that it's really an interesting discussion. I really see that's where cryptocurrencies come into play. Um, cryptocurrencies are designed to be a world currency. Okay, so let's just say that you do have a cryptocurrency that has a finite amount of units and that 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 number cannot be manipulated. It is it is fixed. It can't be inflated, if you will, okay, or devalued. Uh, when you have that and you have it on a global scale, you actually have something that would peg uh, currencies to and, and central banks are then forced to either peg their currency to it. Or they're going to be forced to continue to devalue and then pay the consequences of doing that. And so that's where I think cryptocurrencies really play a strategic and interesting role in all of this is maybe that is the solution. I don't know if that's the solution, but I think that it's something that's definitely worthy of discussing. So in Jim's book, he doesn't talk about that at all. But what Jim does talk about is that gold is what he is really, I guess, recommending because he feels like that's the, a form of currency that would peg everyone across the board so that you basically put an end to the madness. Um, my problem with gold is that it doesn't have any utility. You can't go out to Walmart or whatever store you name and slap down some gold coins and pay for something. People are going to look at you like you're crazy. 
But I do see um, some form of cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin or not, I have no idea. But I do think that if there is a form of a cryptocurrency, it can do the same thing as gold because you can't devalue it, okay, because of the algorithm and the way that the the code on the program would be uh, set up, just like Bitcoin is, okay, you have something that is standardized. And you also have the utility piece that I think gold doesn't have. I can pull out my smartphone. I can scan a QRC code and I could pay for something. And so that's where I see, you know, and we're really talking way off in the future. I don't see that in the next couple of years, but I, I could see something like this playing out in 10, 20 years from now. Uh, and I think that that might be your solution to something like this. And I think that that's a more viable solution than everything goes to gold. And I just don't see countries... <laughs> I just don't see countries doing that because you don't have the utility piece to it. So I'm curious to know what Stig thinks because we've never discussed that idea. And I'm I'm curious. Do you do you share the idea that I just said? I I don't think. Well, the thing I do share is that I I'm not as pessimistic as as James says. So like he he would be bringing in statistics saying like um, the dollar might fail and it's not as used a reserve currency as it used to be. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to say this. I am not as bearish on the dollar as I think Jim is. When you look around, it's a relative game, like we said. So is the dollar really the worst currency? No, it might it might be the best currency when compared to all the other <laughs> when all you compared to all the other currencies that are out there. So go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, Stick. Yeah, no, I, I guess it, it also depends on how you look at statistics, because if you look at like the last five years, it is true that as a reserve currency, um, the magnitude of U.S. dollars has been uh, before it was 71 percent and, and today is like 61, 62 percent. But again, if you just look a few years back, like to 1995, you can actually see that the U.S. dollars as a reserve currency was even like less popular than it is today. So I guess it also kind of depends on how you look at the numbers. Um, I, I don't think the dollar will, will fail. I think that um, as you will see, okay, let me put it like this. The current situation that we have right now where central banks can print the money, do we have problems with that? Yes, we do have inherent problems with that. I, I cannot compare it to democracy. Can I find a lot of different mistakes with the democracy? Yes, I can. Is it the least bad solution? Definitely. I can't think of anything better than democracy. So I would go with democracy. And I guess I kind of feel the same way about currencies. Do we have a problem with the US, you know, the central bank that can do QE and print more money? It's a problem. Do we have anything better, like a better alternative? I'm, I'm not really sure. I know it seems like a very defensive answer and it's, it's not like I have the right solution, but I guess that's, that's you know, what, how, how I look at it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 
888-994-5539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news, and each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market, so I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. When you can't quantify your reason for having a different opinion, uh, I guess you have to stick with what you got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. No, but he, he is bringing a very interesting, uh, you know, some really interesting thoughts about the spacious drawing rights. So he's talking about like, a global currency. And I think that you probably know better than me, uh, Preston, but your stories have been talking about global currency for oh, a long, yeah. long time. Yeah. And I think that that's why he has that opinion. I think he's had that opinion for a long time is because he's seen this thing, you know, growing and all these billionaires, these guys know exactly what's going on. And I think if you pull up uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, they've got a lot of opinions on currencies. In fact, that same uh, interview that we were talking about at the start of the episode, uh, the the lady that was interviewing them asked uh, each one of them what they thought of uh, different currencies and which currencies they thought were the best. Um, Buffett said that he thought the dollar was the best currency out there. Bill Gates surprisingly said that he thought that the Chinese currency was the best that was out there. And after he said that, uh, Buffett asked Gates, he goes, how much uh, Chinese currency do you have, uh, Bill? It's just basically like jabbing him like you're saying that, but, you know, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Anyway, interesting discussion. Um, So just kind of concluding the book, I think we're going to probably just uh, summarize and just kind of wrap things up here. But uh, at the end of the book, Jim really gets into a very uh, negative position of like, basically, I don't know what the solution is here, but I just don't think that people are going to solve it basically was where he got at. He felt that a currency that would go to a gold standard would have a major setback initially, uh, but in the long run, they would uh, really have a major advantage over other currencies, which I think is true. But I don't think that you're going to find a country. And I think Jim Rickards would agree with this. I don't think you're going to find a country that uh, wants to take that initial hit and try to sell that to their citizens as they bear through maybe five or 10 years of 
having rough economic times because they would do something like that and have a peg currency. Did you agree with that, Stig? Oh, yeah. I completely agree. Okay. So um, that's pretty much how the book ends is basically he doesn't, he doesn't see anybody really adopting a gold standard and that this is going to end in just economic disarray <laughs> so and, and jim if we if we summarize that wrong then let us know but all right so uh really fun discussion here um i we're really curious to know what other people think um and if you go to our forum the warrenbuffettforum.com you'll see that we have i don't even know how many posts i think it's almost up to 100 posts where we're discussing deleveraging currency debates and all this stuff on one of the posts there it's really getting fun uh, so if you got some comments or you think we're way off base um, or you got some different points that you want to highlight where you maybe think that gold does have utility or whatever, go on there and we like to shoot holes through things. I've really come to have a deep appreciation for Ray Dalio. I know uh, whenever we first did the Tony Robbins book, I was very critical of Ray Dalio, but that's primarily because I didn't really know the guy or had really studied him very much. But the more I get to know Ray Dalio, I have a real appreciation for what he's doing. And one of his key tenants uh, for Bridgewater, the, the company that he runs, is that, and it's a very strange culture. It's a, it's a culture that I don't think you'll really see in any other environment. But what Dalio prescribes and actually forces upon the people that work there is this idea of having an open environment where people are absolutely truthful and if you have something bad or, or an argumentative stance that you have with somebody else you have to say it to that person and you have to bring it to light and bring it out for everybody because ray dalio believes that mistakes are your biggest gifts um, that a person can receive and so dalio wants people to shoot holes and to criticize his opinions he promotes it in fact if you're not doing that you're really not any adding any value to the organization and so Stig and I really have a very similar opinion, uh, especially on our forum. If I put an idea out there or I tell somebody, hey, this is what I think, um, I really don't want somebody to, to agree with me. If you agree with me, I, I, I basically don't want you to say anything. But if you disagree with me, I really want you to tell me why. And I'm, I, I could care less if it makes me look silly um, because that pretty much happens all the time. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm serious. I want people to disagree with my position. Stig wants you to disagree with his position because whenever that happens and you can quantify the reasons why, if it's just emotional, it's, it, you know, whatever. But if you can quantify, Hey, Preston, I disagree with your opinion. And here's the three reasons why that's value. Not only for, for you to be able to research that and figure that out, but that's value for me and it's value for everybody else in our community to learn from that mistake. And it's not something that we should be looking at. Oh, my ego's hurt. I could care less about that. What I care about is that everybody learns something um, collectively as a group and that we come out of this thing uh, better than we went into it. So that's really our, I guess, our pitch. I guess you could call that a pitch for our forum. But I'd also like to say that that's the kind of community and environment that we want to cultivate within our listeners and the, and the people that interact with us on our websites uh, is to, you know, help us learn, help us point out things that we're missing. So go ahead, Stick. Yeah, and and I guess that people can also see that from us. Like, hey, we we just had an, a whole episode about Bitcoin. I mean, we are contrarians by nature. We want to question everything. 
Uh, right now, we're talking about that the stock market is overvalued. We're talking about that we are transitioning into cash, and everyone in the world, you know, they are, you know, buying equities right now. So <laughs> you know, I, I think it, it's it's very inherent in the in the nature that, that Preston and I have that we want, you know, just the same way that we're saying uh, about currency wars. I'm not really sure we agree. You know, I also want people to tell me that that they don't agree. And the problem is that whenever you have an opinion, you seem logically to to search for information that is backing you up. I think it's called confirmation bias. Actually, I think we actually have a term for that in the in literature. So if you have a you know certain point of view, it's kind of like where can I Google and find an article that agrees with me? And yeah. it's just very dangerous path, I'd say. And I, I do it for myself. You know, whenever I decided to transition to cash. You know, I tried to find like 10 articles saying, stake, you're right. But, you know, I could find a thousand articles telling me I was wrong, but I didn't want to read those. Yeah. So, so yeah, <laughs> that was just my two cents. And- <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I, and Dalio talks about that idea that you're, that you're mentioning, Stig. And he says that he thinks that it's cultivated back whenever you go back to your days in high school or your days in college. If you make a mistake or you miss something. That is wrong. The teacher, that is that is a wrong opinion. You get a bad score. There's there's a lot of negative reinforcement uh, attached to mistakes. And so he says that that that's basically bred into our culture that if you make a mistake, you're wrong. So you should be looking for reasons to support the, the stance and the opinion that you had. And he basically goes in the exact opposite direction of that. He says, if you made a mistake, there is a learning experience that can be captured there so that you don't make, you know, more mistakes or you become more efficient in your thoughts. And it's just, it's amazing what he has. And he has all this outlined in a document called Principles uh, by Ray Dalio. If you want to search that on Google and read it, it's a fascinating read. But uh, we'll have all that stuff up in our show notes as usual. But uh, right now, we're going to go ahead and transition into a question from our audience. And this question comes from Brendan White. And here's what he has to say. Hey, guys, it's Brendan. I'm going to be a freshman in college this fall and recently watched your uh, videos and started listening to your podcast. I had a question. Uh, with all these tools, techniques, and numbers at an investor's disposal, why do some not experience success? In other words, what make what mistakes are commonly made while investing? All right, Brendan, that's a good question. It's open enough that I think Stig and I can uh, throw a couple different things at you. So Stig, go ahead and fire away with what you think. Yeah, so the first thing I want to say is analysis paralysis. I, I You know, you're saying that there is so much information out there, uh, and why doesn't people get any success? I think that's the problem. There is too much information out there. So, you know, if, if you didn't have any investment books, but just had, you know, Warren Buffett, then I guess a lot of people would be quite successful. Like even though that you would like to pick an investing strategy that works for you, you know, there's just some underlying principles within investing that you just need to follow. And I think that is, that is something that really confuses a lot of people. So you might be saying, okay, I want, I'm interested in stocks. So you would read one article about, you know, of Warren Buffett, then you'll read about candlestick analysis, which is like technical analysis. And then you would read one article about high-frequency training. And you were like, huh? What should I do now? And I think that's, that's probably the main problem. Like, There's a lot of different strategies that can make sense. But if you're mixing all of those and you're not like, doing one you know, fully, I think you're really, uh, really heading for trouble. Another thing is that I don't think people spend enough time in investing. I think that 
if you monitored one person uh, you know, throughout a year and looked at how many hours you spent on different activities, including investing, I think you would easily find 10 or 20 activities that he would spend more time on. So, you know, you, would, you, you wouldn't expect to master rock climbing if you spend like one hour every three months. But for some reason, people think that investing can be somewhat easy if, even though they don't spend the time. And then if you then add that investing is mainly males and it mainly attracts males to think that they're better than the average um, <laughs> and they don't spend the time, uh, then you have a problem. So uh, anyway, there's just a few a few facts. I, I see the person have a, uh, another thing to say, but I just want to throw in one more thing. The last uh, one more thing is that it's very intransparent. Like if I was to you know raise Preston or something, you know I would probably lose. But we will figure out pretty f- fast who is the best in this race. In investing, it's very very different. Like it would take years to figure out whether or not you're right or wrong. And even then, you can probably come up with a lot of excuses. Why you're not doing well? So, um, Preston, I see that you definitely have something. Well, I can definitely tell you, you would probably beat me in a race, Stig. You're you're very light. I'm slow. <laughs> I'm very slow these days. But, um, Brandon, I I really like this question, and I think Stig gave you some really good advice. To be quite honest with you, I I like the idea of you studying a person that in in investing that you kind of have some similarities to. For me, for me, I started off studying Warren Buffett. I didn't really look at anybody in the entire investing community for years, um, and I just studied everything about Warren Buffett. I read every single shareholder holder letter. I read every single thing that he came out on, and I focused on nobody else. And I think that that was, that was good for me to be able to flush out a lot of um, other people's different opinions and... Uh, it was a good learning experience, okay? And I think that it's important for you to start off with somebody who has made it, somebody that has um, proof that their system works. Now, whether that's Warren Buffett, that's Ray Dalio, that's whoever, but you need to pick somebody, and I think that you need to pick them based off of their personality and see if your personality is similar to theirs. The other thing that I'll tell you is there's a lot of different approaches out there, and there's a lot of different approaches out there that work. You know, I'm obviously a value investor. I think value investing works. But I also think that there's people out there that can do. I mean, we just, Stig and I just finished reading the book, uh, Hedge Fund Wizards uh, by Jack Schwager. And, you know, after reading that book, I was like, I don't know how this person can do this successfully. But the fact that they have 25 years without one down year using these techniques tells me that it works. Okay, the statistics of them doing that consistently year after year is, you know, one in a billion or whatever it is. So the, the person obviously knows what they're doing. I don't understand that approach, and that doesn't mean that it's wrong. Um, so what I would tell you is try to match your personality with somebody else that's been successful and study that person and stick to that person. And like Stig said, you have to dig into it. You can't do this for an hour a week and think that you're going to become a master at it. you got to really dedicate some serious hours Until the point where you actually start feeling that it's starting to come together and it's starting to click. I've got one other point. For me, investing in the stock market is all about investing in real businesses. Okay, I look at a stock like it's a miniature business. Every single share is one business. And I think that for anybody to look at it any differently, I don't that doesn't make sense to me. Okay, it just doesn't. Um, And so when you look at it through that context, I buy one share 
just the same way I would buy a business on Main Street. I look at the the revenues. I look at the brand. I look at the the customer base. I look at whether the revenues are are increasing, decreasing, the stability. I look at it through the same exact lens like I was going to buy a business on Main Street. And I think that that's probably the best advice I could give somebody that if you're buying shares of stock in any other manner or you're buying bonds, for for example, if you if you want to go lend money to your buddy and he's in debt up to his eyeballs and you think that because you're going to get a 15 percent return that that's a good investment. You know, I totally disagree with that. I buy bonds in the exact same manner. Always try to bring things when you're investing down to the micro scale of how you might understand it if you were going to lend money to your friend or if you were going to buy equity in a business that your friend owns. Look at it through that same lens, and I think that you're going to find that you're very successful. Uh, Stig, go ahead. I saw you had a follow-up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it really relates to what Josh, the guest we had last week, was talking about. Because I was asking him, you know, Josh, how do I figure out which which real estate investing strategy I should use. And he would say, what is right for you? I mean, you might be a house flipper or you might be a buy up and hold real estate guy. And it, it's quite the same here. Like, I'm a value investing guy. I'm really into Warren Buffett. That is the right for me. I don't think I'll transition into like growth investing. I don't think I'll transition into high tech or real estate for that matter. I don't think it suits my personality. But no matter which strategy you're choosing, and this is really, really important for you also as a soon to be a freshman, is that you just need to put in the hours. Like, you wouldn't expect to go to the Super Bowl by spending an hour here and there. That's what I was talking about before. You really need to put in the hours. Do you know what the Super Bowl is over in Denmark? Yeah, I just learned that like two or three years ago. <laughs> no, just kidding. Yeah, but sometimes, Preston, you know, some of the guests are even fun with metaphors like, no, that's silly. Everybody knows that. I was like, I never heard about that. <laughs> so so lucky that people can be. <laughs> oh my! All right, sorry to to make fun of you there, Stig. Um, but no, I, I think this is a great discussion. And I think you know, for just to kind of give you an example of matching our personality with an investor. So for me, Warren Buffett was a really good person for me to model because. He's a very patient person. I see myself as a very patient investor. Like for me to buy something and sit on it for three years, I'll think nothing of it. That's no big deal. Um, but for other people, they they might not have that same personality or that same trait. They might need to get out of the trade within two weeks or whatever it is. And if that's your personality, modeling a Warren Buffett style of investing is probably a, a bad choice. It's just not going to work for you. So you got to really kind of lay out, hey, these are this is my personality. This is how I do things. And so find somebody else that has a similar personality that's successful. I think that's the most important part that has a proven track record that their system works and then study everything you can on it. So, OK, that's all we got for you guys this week. Uh, like I said earlier in the show, if you guys want to get our our cliff notes, our executive summaries of all these books, it's too easy. Just sign up on our mailing list. We do not send spam. I absolutely hate spam more than probably anything on the planet. So if you sign up on our list, you're going to be getting executive summaries. And that is it. Um, if you guys are enjoying the show, please go to iTunes, leave us a review. It helps us out a lot. So um, we really appreciate that whenever people do that. And shoot me an email if you do so I can say thank you. And we're going to send a free signed copy of our Warren Buffett investing book off to Mark. And we really appreciate him uh, asking his question. If you have a question you want to get played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record the question there. So uh, we'll see everybody next week. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. 
To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.